So something weird happened to me today. Oh, all right. Here we go. So I, I went for breakfast in a coffee shop. That is weird. And <laughs> why is that weird? That's oh, not that's weird. not weird? Oh, okay. Sorry. That's not the weird bit. Oh, go ahead. So I, I ordered scrambled eggs on toast. Oh, yeah. Okay. Weird. Scrambled eggs came and it was 1.5 pieces of toast with scrambled eggs. 1.5. Exactly. <laughs> the barista then ate half a piece of toast with some scrambled eggs in front of me. <gasps> Wait, like behind the counter? You've been to the coffee shop, Anna. I have. And it's small, right? Yeah, you can see her. It's a small, if someone's eating essentially quarter of my breakfast in front of me, I'm going to notice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's odd, right? I love that she. No, it's amazing. That listen, there's that takes a lot of uh, gumption. Like that person, that person made you your breakfast and was like, you know what? I'm kind of hungry. I'm gonna keep some of this for me. <laughs> Did she give you twenty five percent discount? It was four pounds. Wow. Well, oh. I, th- I think that's kind of expensive for scrambled eggs on toast. For seventy five percent worth of your breakfast. Four pounds for a breakfast in a coffee shop. You should not complain. Like you got exactly what you paid for. Never mind. I don't feel bad. But just the fact that she ate quarter of my bread, I was still hungry after that, and and I could just I could watch her reading it. When this happens, I always think to myself, like, does that person think this is normal? Like maybe they were never taught don't don't steal someone's breakfast. Maybe this is just their normal. Maybe she thinks it's like sharing. Like no, it's really nice. <laughs> Like it's a cooperative cafe. You just have to give 25% of your breakfast away, like a tax. Yeah, it's a charity. <laughs> like a charity. That's $5, five, five US dollars you paid for breakfast this morning. <laughs> That's quite expensive for Norwich. All right. But I bet you're going to go back there tomorrow, aren't you? I mean, I've got nowhere else to go. No, but you have to go back and you have to order the same thing, but you have to specify, I want all of it this time. <laughs> <laughs> We should move on. Let's uh, let's talk about Watchtower Weekly. So the Register reports that an Airbnb host has been jailed after a guest finds a hidden camera inside the Wi-Fi router. This really scares me because I've I've been staying in a in an Airbnb all week, and when I got in, was just about when this story broke, <laughs> and I immediately and and it was you know it was like a four bedroom little cottage um, in the middle of a cemetery, um, and. <laughs> I, I I did I went head to toe checking everything like all the places around where there might be a camera I took it down all the all the fire alarms and stuff like that just because I was like panicking from this uh, from this post but it's you know there's a lot of Airbnbs out there it's 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 probably okay but this is this is not a good thing to have happened yeah this is not the first time I've heard of stories like this either of sort of people having undisclosed cameras in their house there was one where. I actually think that that no one got arrested, but there was a camera, a security camera in the living room, like a straight up like um, they weren't trying to hide anything. There was just a camera in the living room and like the guests didn't notice for the first day or something. And then they finally saw it and they contacted Airbnb. And and basically, I think they sort of ruled in favor of the Airbnb host only because the camera appeared in one of the photos for the for the listing like you could very clearly see the camera in one of the photos and they were like well we've disclosed that there was a camera here and you decided to stay here anyway so there's oh wow not what you can do this is not that though this is like this is hidden yeah yeah this is this is definitely like that's seemingly for them to try and protect their property um, which arguably is done by insurance not by surveillance yeah but this is definitely just weird and like voyeuristic 
for sure. Yeah. It's interesting. She said, I immediately called the police after finding the camera and, and the, the memory card. They came and took away the equipment. I don't know that I would think to call the police. Really? Yeah. Oh, no, I definitely would. Yeah. Really? Like, maybe this, this is just my mentality. I, I This doesn't seem like a police matter necessarily. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not ringing 999. They're not, you know, rushing around with blues and twos. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. But non, non-urgent number... Hello, excuse me. I'm I'm in an Airbnb that I'm renting, and they they were watching me. Yeah, I feel I feel like that. That's a matter to get involved with. Just just for the record, right? That you have of the police coming around and and kind of, you know, they can take the the memory card into evidence and stuff like this. You don't have to fight Airbnb for, you know, oh this happened. Oh well, you know, maybe it didn't. You know that that kind of fight. True. Yeah, I was looking at advice for people in similar situations from this, and the first thing you should do apparently is call the police. Wow, very. That's so interesting. The person who uh, who discovered the camera, she works in IT security and always checks hotel rooms that she stays in. Uh, she she said she became immediately suspicious when she arrived at the Airbnb apartment and found a motion sensor monitor at the flat's entrance and two in the bedrooms, which is odd since the flat had not been renovated for smart home automation. Yeah, like she immediately. So like little warning bells went off. Yeah, I love that she she works in IT security. It's like you picked the wrong woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's so cool. I also think that calling the police is the second thing that you do. And the first thing that you do is plug the memory card in and have a look. Oh, if you dare, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she seemed to find it before she even went to bed. But like otherwise... You've got a full video of you like rolling around in your sleep. You're, ne- you're never going to find that again. It's true. Yeah, you have to pay like you have to go to sleep studies for that. Like you go to a sleep institute to get that kind of information. So yeah. So the ne- next one on here is Michael Bublé's Instagram got hacked. Is Michael Bublé big in America? Yes, I, I like him quite a bit. He's Canadian, right? I don't, I, I don't know. I, I knew he wasn't British. He's not British, but I kind of thought he was. Something. He's like Canada's prince. Really? I mean, isn't that that kid? What's his name? He's not a kid anymore. But Justin Bieber? That's the one. Bieber. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, someone hacked Michael Bublé's Instagram and put up some very horrible images. What were they, Matt? I, I, I don't want to go into it. <laughs> I, I really don't. They were awful. But then one of the captions was, thank you, Michael. Very cool. <laughs> Which I thought was quite funny. (laughs) (laughs) One of the other ones, uh, hang on, I'm going to read this live and hopefully not find it offensive by the time I get to the end. Another another post on his Instagram showed an orangutan on a bike chasing after a little girl. (laughs) The monkey's face was covered with a human cutout. That's not okay. No, that's terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) Apparently it went out to 2.1 million followers. I assume he's probably got a few less followers by now. (laughs) Oh no, I bet he's got more. Really? Yeah, I bet he's got more. (laughs) I mean, if you're Michael Buble and then you uh, accidentally post an Instagram of, uh, can I say balls? I'm going to say a man's balls. (laughs) But yeah, like I, I feel like, you know, the initial rush of fans would be expecting that Michael Buble has, uh, you know, foiled himself a bit. Yeah, but I assume this must be his, like, management team got hacked or something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, there's probably someone who didn't have good password security on their account. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, Instagram uh, is one of the highest kind of credibility in terms of usernames. So there's always a fight over... You know, shorter usernames or, or noun words and, and stuff like that. People trade accounts and, and hack them for 
basically for money. So <laughs> it becomes an obvious target like this. If you've you know used one of the top whatever number of passwords or you don't have 2FA set on your account. Yeah, I think they recently set up 2FA because there was like a number of high profile attacks like these. So I guess that's a way to strengthen your account. Yeah, and, and don't add your mobile number to Instagram, I think is another good one because mm. um, they use that as kind of a fallback for everything. So, you know, you, you add, you know, the forgotten password and you can't access your email and you've got 2FA turned on, but you can't access it or whatever. The support team seem to just go back to, it will text you a number, just tell us and the number and we'll move the account. Seems to be uh, as easy as that, unfortunately. Yeah, we, was it you, Matt, that did some of the, some of those studies into how easy it is to to get 2FA disabled on an account that you have it enabled on? Yeah, I, I made a load of accounts when we were uh, researching 2FA for one password. And um, I, I basically set up accounts, uh, told them I'd forgotten the password and used different things to kind of try and prove who I was. Uh, phone number is uh, a remarkable thing. Yep. Like it, it's not a secret. It mm. moves around every time you buy a new phone for some people. And yet, they use it as almost a, a verification method. It's um, it's it's pretty odd. Yeah, yeah. I like how we've turned a pretty ridiculous story into some proactive advice. <laughs> yeah, we had to salvage it somehow. We can't just talk about Michael Bublé's not balls. We have to get something out of it. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, uh, WhatsApp voice calls used to inject Israeli spyware on phones is the uh, is the headline here. Yeah. I find this one interesting because I feel like WhatsApp is supposed to be one of those safe spaces, uh, one of those safe apps to use. And then you hear something like this and it's like, well, that's terrifying. Um, so the Ver this is reported by The Verge. WhatsApp discovered in early May that attackers were able to install surveillance software on both iPhones and Android phones by simply ringing up targets using the app's phone call function. Uh, the malicious code developed by the secretive Israeli company NSO Group could be transmitted even if users did not answer their phones and the calls often disappeared from call logs. Once installed, the spyware can turn on the, the phone's camera and microphone, scan emails and messages, and collect the user's location data. Whew. WhatsApp has 1.5 billion global users, and they are urging everyone to update uh, immediately to close the security hole. Uh, WhatsApp is investigating the situation, but is so far unable to estimate the number of phones successfully targeted by the exploit. Yeah, this is this is like some sort of Orwellian nightmare. This is terrible. This I this makes me want to just put my phone in a lead box and stick it in the closet <laughs> and never use it again. <laughs> this, is, this is pretty awful. I, I think it's a bit of excessive journalism. The worst one I saw was Bloomberg, and the headline was end-to-end -end encryption isn't as safe as you think. That's that's sensationalist. It really is, yeah. And the other one that they had was WhatsApp hack shows end-to-end -end encryption is, is pointless. Like, all the sensationalism around this kind of takes away from how serious it is, mm. I think. Because if you, if you cry wolf like this so many times, like headlines like this... Yeah, for sure. Okay, so on the big topic this week, we have uh, something related to Watchtower Weekly, really. It's uh, how to secure your smart home. So, uh, you know, this is we're talking about your own home, not how to, you know, kind of uh, tinker with cameras in other people's. But uh, yeah, 
Anna, take it away. Okay, so these devices are also known as the Internet of Things um, and are growing rapidly. So protecting ourselves from potential hackers is critical. A smart home can be easily hacked, offering new points of entry for cyber criminals. We've covered this a lot lately in our Watchtower stories. um, So we're hoping to offer some tips on how to secure these devices. These smart devices are designed kind of to make our lives easier. They can do everything from heating our homes to controlling the lights to playing music or ordering online groceries. All of these can be done remotely from your phone or your computer when you're not even there. So while it may be tempting just to hook these things up and go for utter convenience, it's definitely worth setting up some extra layers of security so you have some kind of greater peace of mind. And yeah, recently I read a statistic that times of peak activity the average smart home device was attacked once every two minutes that's kind of crazy that's uh that's a lot yeah so i I think the first thing that people can really do is is research the providers before purchasing so we've we've spoken a lot about kind of amazon devices google devices and and all, all these other ones but you know you you probably do want to go for a fairly big brand right so consider your Wi-Fi router your front door to your smart home. Like any front door, it should be you know solid, equipped with strong locks in case of cyber criminals come knocking. So building a more secure smart home really starts with your Wi-Fi router. Most, uh, most people simply use the router provided by their internet service provider, but a lot of independent companies also sell routers. Once you move to a secure router, it's a good idea to research the smart devices you might want Uh, Some things to look for are, what are the general privacy policies? Will the provider store your data for too long or sell it to a third party? And how are updates enabled? And will you get all of the updates that the provider is putting out. Uh, the other thing when, when setting up your router is to give it a name. Uh, you know, most if you if you click on the Wi-Fi menu on your computer right now, you will see countless entries for sort of the default names uh, for your routers. You know, here we've got lots of I see lots of Netgears and and uh, sort of the local cable providers Wi-Fi names uh, because the people just use those routers and stick with the names. Don't stick with the name the manufacturer gave it. Give it an unusual name not associated with you or your address. Uh, you don't want your router name to give away any personal identifiers. Treat this like your password, as we like to say. Keep it random but memorable. Also, bonus points if you go with something clever. I always enjoy seeing uh, Wi-Fi router names like... Um, CIA surveillance van or uh, there's there's a few other good ones out there that sort of poke fun at people that might be looking to, to la- leech onto your wife. Mine is can't hug every cat. <laughs> that just makes you sound like a crazy cat lady. That's fantastic. I love it. It's pretty good, isn't it? That's really good. Mine is Bears Beats Battlestar Galactica, <laughs> which is an office reference. Oh my gosh. The next thing is, you know, set up strong encryption for Wi-Fi. First of all, don't just have it be an open access portal. Like you, you, you have to set it up so that you can, so that you are required to provide a password. Uh, that's that's sort of like you know, the, the most basic thing. Uh, but in, in your router settings, look for something like WPA2. Uh, this will help keep your network and your communications secure. Nice. So number four is change your default usernames and passwords. Uh, Cyber criminals probably already know the default passwords that come with many smart home products. Um, That makes it easy for them to access these devices and the information on them. Uh, So our advice is to pick a device which allows you to change the password, as some providers don't even allow you to do that. 
Um, and obviously you can generate and store these passwords safely in one password with everything else. And as always, use strong and unique passwords for your Wi-Fi networks and your device accounts. Yeah, I mean, it, it's always fascinating when you go around to someone's house and they've got a completely open Wi-Fi network. I, I, I'm, I'm always like, wow, okay. You just, you let your neighbor use all your bandwidth. <laughs> oh, yeah. Come on in. Oh, do you really? Uh, set up a guest network. Um you know, keep your Wi-Fi account private. Visitors, friends, and relatives can log into a separate network that doesn't that doesn't tie into your devices. Uh, I actually do this because periodically we'll have like team members over here uh, to work on some stuff for a week and whatnot, and I have a separate guest network set up just for them uh i've got the password stored in a shared vault in the company account uh so that i can just say like look the password's here it's some insanely long uh generated password and they just pipe it in and they're good to go but they don't get access to uh my thermostat or you know my apple tvs or like the you know any of the other smart devices i have on on the network it's just just internet access and it's completely sequestered yeah you want to check the settings for your devices as well your, your device might come with like default privacy and security settings so you may want to consider changing them uh, as, as some of these default settings can kind of benefit the manufacturer more than they benefit you um, you can customize these to kind of fit every need that you have like uh, only give the device access to the things you absolutely need to and then disable everything else. Nice. So number seven, we have keep your software up to date. So this is a really simple one, but a really easy one to put off. I think we've all been there when you get like a software update notification, you're just like, remind me later. Um, but try and install software updates as soon as your manufacturer alerts you of one, as it might be um, like a patch for a security flaw. So the next one is is two-factor authentication, our, uh, our faithful friend. If your smart device apps offer uh, 2FA or two-factor authentication, uh, use it. <laughs> Simple. For sure. Avoid public Wi-Fi networks. And this is, you might say, like, well, why would my, you know, why would my ring doorbell be on a public Wi-Fi network? That's not what we, what we're mean, what we mean here. Uh, you know, you might want to manage your devices when you're not home. You, know, you might want to say, oh, I've got, you know what, I'm sitting in this coffee shop. There is, a, I do know that there's a software update for my thermostat. I'll just log in real quick. Generally... Don't do that. Like, just wait till you're home. Do it from the security of your own home. It just sort of cuts down on a whole host of problems that you could open yourself I up I just to. imagine the guy sniffing public Wi-Fi networks, um, just the the glee on his face when he finds out that he's, like, intercepted some packets that have uh, some login details for your, you know, lamp or something. And, and you live across the road. Oh, just, you know, the, just the smile on his face as he's like, I can turn your lights off. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was out walking the dog a couple of weeks ago and I pulled out my phone to uh, to start playing some music and I wanted to connect up my AirPods. So I went to the Bluetooth menu and I saw that there was a sound, a Samsung sound bar within striking distance of, of me. And, I, and I, I was like, huh. And I tapped on it. And it connected right up. And I was like, I could just start playing music. And like, I, I chickened out, of course, but like, I wanted to just like start really softly playing like some really soft music and then just crank it up to like to, to max volume and just see who comes sort of storming out of their house looking around for who the hell might be doing this to them. <laughs> Trying to frantically stop it. <laughs> uh, oh. And Anna, you want to bring us home here at number 10? Sure. So um, finally, we have watch out for outages. So ensure that a hardware outage does not result in an unsecure state for your device. So yeah, no doubt 
more and more smart devices will find their way into our homes. Uh, it's great if they make life more convenient, but we can't forget to secure these devices, especially with their increasing popularity. So I, I think we need to, to talk about the, the guest this week. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Matt, would you like to t- t- tell us a little bit about uh, who's coming on the show? The guest this week, when Anna said that she was kind of trying to book this guest, I... I literally said i will buy you dinner if you manage to to get this and i I never thought that we would have someone of this kind of legendary insecurity coming on uh our podcast where we talk about you know michael bubbly and uh some things that were posted to his instagram (laughs) i mean round of applause for anna who who managed to uh to get bruce snyer to agree to come on the podcast thank you so uh hand it over to to rue who did the interview So welcome to the program, Mr. Bruce Schneier. You people know Bruce. Uh, He is an internationally renowned security technologist hailed as the security guru by The Economist. Bruce, you don't need an introduction, but I'm going to give you the opportunity to give one anyway. Welcome to the show. Hey, hi. What what people might not know is that I now teach uh, internet security policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. So I'm trying to teach a little bit of tech to uh, to policy students and uh, internet policy to, uh, to techies. And I'm trying to to work to bridge that gap between policy and tech that are serious problems, right, are, are really how do we govern tech and what is the governance of tech. And so we need people who can speak both languages. I'm trying to facilitate that. That's really cool. Wow. That like even before we sort of get into some of the some of the questions that we have, like that's such a great endeavor for someone to take on, because I think that that's really that is absolutely needed. So often these days we have, you know, rules and laws being put in place that aren't necessarily based in, in reality or practical matters. So that's really cool. Or even worse, did you watch the Facebook hearings, right? The questions like, how does Facebook make money? You know, if legislators ask questions like that, yeah. it's not going to get good internet security policy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely, absolutely correct. Wow, that's super cool. All right, well, listen, why don't, why don't we dive into some of the questions? And, and you know what? That leads right into sort of our first question. Every company these days, it seems, is sort of you know creating and selling data and, and metadata about us, and then other companies are buying it up and or or it's being made public through accidental breaches and stuff. Do you think that this notion around companies trading and being careless with our data makes us more careless as sort of the the consumers of these platforms? And it's an interesting question. Right, Shoshana Zuboff calls this surveillance capitalism. The sort of new way businesses are monetizing information about us. It's both companies that do that as their primary uh, revenue source, the Facebooks and the Googles, and it's all the other companies that are selling you appliances and toys and other services that realize they have a data revenue stream. So yeah, it is everywhere. It seems like to be the new form of capitalism. I'm not sure it makes us more careless. I think a lot of us are resigned to it. I think the companies go out of their way to make it not salient so we don't think about it. I think that that's 100 percent true. Yeah, Yeah. but certainly when we think about it, we're concerned about it. But it seems like from surveys, it's less that we care less or are careless. It's that we think it's inevitable 
and don't see viable alternatives. Yeah. So if, if I tell people you want to protect your privacy, you should not have an email address, not carry a cell phone, not use a credit card. Right? That's fundamentally dumb advice. <laughs> you can't live in 21st century first world countries without engaging in those technologies. You know, so people are deleting their Facebook accounts more and more. But for a lot of people, they need to be on Facebook for their socialization. So a lot of people are resigned to it. And that's sort of where I look at government as the missing link, because it's not going to be consumer rebellions that change surveillance capitalism. It'll be rules and laws. Indeed. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. I don't think that people sort of deleting their Facebook account in 2019 is necessarily going to hurt Facebook's bottom line. I think that they're probably going to do just fine. Especially if they use Instagram instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would think that most people don't even realize that that Instagram is owned by Facebook. You know, I don't want to use Facebook, but I'm happy to use Instagram. Right, and Facebook doesn't keep it secret, but they don't advertise it. And I think they're playing that game. For sure. Is I'm, So the next question is, do you think it's possible to, to sort of opt out of this type of life? And no, <laughs> and I think we know the answer. Yeah, the answer is it's kind of no. Right. I mean, I mean, impossible. Yes. Right. You can build a cabin in the woods and be off the grid and not have any communications. It's possible. It's just not reasonable to expect. Sure. And this has changed in the past two years. You know, if I we'd been interviewing me five years ago or 10 years ago, we would talk about. Uh, protecting your data on your computer and how you could have better security. But now our data isn't even on our computers. Right? Our mail's at Google's computers. Our photo photos are at someone else's site. Um, and these security breaches happen, and they don't happen to us. They happen to you know, companies like Marriott. And our information is is lost or stolen, and there's nothing we can do about it. Right? So it's not only you can't opt out, but even if you try to opt out, your data is not under your control anymore. Right. Yeah. And that makes it even harder. Right. You know, my email is not on Google servers, but probably about half my email is because everybody else's email is on Google servers. Exactly. So here I am opting out from from Gmail, but I'm not really opting out because I can't. Right. And it's important to note, like we're not even talking, we're, we're beyond sort of opting out of social media. Certainly you cannot be on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or, you know, the now defunct Google Plus. But it, these breaches are this goes well beyond that data that you would sort of voluntarily share. Right. And social media is really how we interact with our with our colleagues. You know, I am not on Facebook personally and I notice the lapse. Yeah. I notice the lapse socially. Uh, I occasionally will find businesses who don't have a website, just have a Facebook page. Right? There is a cost for not being on these platforms. And sometimes we're willing to pay it and sometimes we're not. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at sort of, you know, because you are on the One Password podcast, if we look at us, you know, we we tend to handle people's data like nuclear waste, right? We don't, we, we need to limit who touches it. We, we only ask for what we need. We treat our customers' data um, with as much care as humanly possible. But this is certainly not the trend, right? This is not, it may be in the password management field, but most software services is not the trend. No, because it's expensive. Password management is inherently a, you know, we want to be more secure because it's the things that secure other things. But you move to other data, and you're not going to make those kind of trade-offs. Right? I mean, you know, I mean, and and you can go further. Right? I mean, I have a password manager, password safe, and I deliberately don't let anybody put anything in the cloud ever. Right. right? So I'm, but I'm sacrificing a feature. 
because if your data is in the cloud, you can sync over different devices. Right? For what I wrote, if you want to do that, you have to do it manually. And so here, so again, we're, we're all making these trade-offs of usability versus security. Yeah, and that's actually it's it's interesting. That's that, that's a question that that I wanted to ask you is where where do you draw that distinction? I realize that that's sort of a hard generalization. To it's make. impossible to generalization. You draw it where you make it. When you get to a typical business, they're going to draw the line where it makes financial sense. Let's just use you know your, your typical retailer as an example. If if they are not going to lose customers because of bad security, they're not going to worry about it too much. Now, you remember the Yahoo breaches. Yahoo was pretty famous for skimping on security yeah. because it didn't matter to them. It didn't matter to them financially. And you, you start moving into a program that advertises security. Well, it's going to be more a reputational thing. For a bank, security is going to be money. They're going to spend uh, more to protect the money they would lose otherwise. Now, everybody's making their trade-offs based on usability, based on profit, you know, based on, on regulations. Do you think that there's, there's any way to sort of set a new baseline in people's mindsets for, for what security should be when it comes to handling personal data? You know, maybe, but it's pretty opaque. So you could call Facebook and ask, you know, how do you handle my data? And they're not going to tell you. <laughs> right. And none of these companies will because they don't want to make all of that that public. So I don't see a consumer-led push to increased security, just like you don't have consumer-led pushes to increase safety in pretty much anything, that it is a government-led push mm. because that's where you have the information where you can make intelligent decisions that ratchet up the safety. Now, this is true in so many areas of society. So I, I think you might have a generic, you know, we want more security for our data that will lead to government regulation. And we saw that in Europe with GDPR. For sure. The government set the rules because there was the political will to do that. You see that like this past year, the California data privacy laws. So. I mean, that is likely the mechanism. Yeah. You can sort of debate the merits of, of having government involved at that level and, and sort of setting setting those types of laws. But it's certainly... Uh, you can, but I'm not sure what the alternative is. I mean, the alternative is nothing. Right? The alternative is what, is what we have today in the U.S., right? With absolute free-for-all. Yeah, exactly. The the Wild West, as I like to call it. So what about... Let, let's focus in a little bit on password habits. Like, what do you think are some of the best ways to improve password habits? So the, the first one is, you know, we, we know that people are terrible at choosing passwords. Passwords, right? And and we're sort of at the point where pretty much anything you can remember can be hacked. So we want people to choose unmemorable passwords. So I, I recommend a password manager. I think that is that is essential because we want you to choose a password you can't remember. And if in order to do that, we need some system that will remember them for you. Right. And uh, you know that really helps. Uh, there is a system for choosing passwords you can't break that uh, you can remember. And basically, I tell people to craft a sentence and use the sentence as a way to generate the password. So, right, the first letter 
of every of every word, and then you know with some number letter substitutions or extra punctuation or weird capitalization, you sort of remember the sentence and it's something memorable from your life that's personal. Mm. So I suggest a sentence you'd be embarrassed to write down. <laughs> right. They are easier to remember and you're less likely to write it down. Yeah. And then you remember the production rule of how to turn that sentence into into the password. And they use that for the very high value passwords, the, the password for your password manager. And uh, you turn on two-factor whenever you can and it matters. Indeed. Duo or uh, Google's two-factor, right? You know, for anything where there's money involved, where there's your reputation involved, where there's personal information involved, you want to turn those features on. So that's sort of my advice to individuals. Yeah, those are all those are all really, really solid bits of advice. Uh, and then just one last thing to sort of wrap it up here, Bruce. Uh, I, I, I sort of play it off as a small thing, but this is this is a pretty big question. What what do you think is something that we would need to see as sort of a societal change in regards to security or privacy? Like what's something that you're sort of hoping we we see in our lifetime? The thing that is missing for security and privacy, I mean, writ large, whether it's our data privacy or Internet of Things security or national cybersecurity, is is involvement in government. I mean, that is who has abdicated their role. I mean, this will only work if sort of everybody is, is working together, pushing against each other to figure out optimal strategies. We have basically corporations running the show, so it's optimized for profit and not for security. And if you want to fix that, you have to bring government back, right? That, that is the big change that has to happen in our lifetime. I think it's inevitable. Like governments regulate dangerous things. And once the internet starts killing people, government will be involved. But it really shouldn't take that. And, and, and we're starting to see some move in that direction, most notably in Europe. But the U.S. is so anti-government involvement that we really are hurting ourselves and producing these very suboptimal solutions. And that brings us back, of course, to, to sort of where we started the whole call, which is your efforts to, to educate future <laughs> our future policymakers. Uh, well, and to convince technologists to become part of policy. I mean, it's not just a matter of making sure our uh, legislators and regulators understand tech. It's getting people who do understand tech, who are techies, to take a couple of years in their career and, and work on policy or advise or speak or write. I mean, there are lots of ways we can engage and we're just not doing it. Wow. Uh, Bruce, this has been a great interview. You've given me a lot. You've given me a lot to think about. I'm assuming you've given our, our listeners a lot to think about too. I really appreciate you taking, taking a few minutes. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we sign yeah, off? I think we're good. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Thank you so much. So Anna, what the phrase? The potato is baking. Do you think it's as obvious as it's it sounds? Literally about a potato? No, I was. I thinking, is it about you know, like a lady with a bun in the oven, like a a, a pregnant? Lady. <laughs> oh, it's 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 a woman who is who is swollen with child, is what you're saying? <laughs> swollen. <laughs> <laughs> Rude. You want to take a stab at it? Well, I, listen. I thought that that was. I thought that was going to be it. The potato is baking. Um, I wonder if this is a way to say like. I'll be right there or like I'm on my way. Or maybe it's like something is is on its way Oh, rather than like you were on your way. 
Oh. Oh. I think we might be close. Is this like a Brazilian way of saying like I got a poo? Like I like, <laughs> I, like no. Is it like fire is coming? You've pretty much got this. It is a Brazilian phrase which I'm going to attempt to say is a batata ta asando, which <laughs> means a disaster is on the way. Oh. Yeah, so it does mean you have to poo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, listen, everyone, I think that we've had some success with this show. Uh, we've had our ups and our downs, and many things have gone round and round, but we should probably should probably say say goodbye. It's, it's really weird because I do listen to this podcast once we've made it, and it's weird when we finish up the podcast, but there's no music because obviously Anna puts the music on after we talk. <laughs> but every time I listen to it, I hear the music. I could hum the music for you. Yeah, the, in my head now, the music is going in my head because like, you know, we're, we're coming to an end. So it's perfect. So you're expecting it. All right. All right. Love you, Rue. Love you both. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye-bye.